praise the Lord, he is alive, because no grave could e'er restrain him. God overcomes evil, overpowers the devil. Every scheme that is thrown against our Savior ultimately fails because he wins. Praise the Lord. We're going to be looking at that this morning in the book of Revelation. So if you have your copy of God's word, turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. We find ourselves in a chapter that's really dealing with Israel in the future. Israel in the future. In that time of great tribulation, we have a seven-year period uh, referred to as Daniel's 70th week. It's a seven-year period in the end times that will culminate in the battle of Armageddon and the Lord's return uh, that is yet to come and halfway through that seven-year period uh, we have a, a a change that happens so three and a half years in the Antichrist is going to do something that's referred to as the abomination of desolation and then the last three and a half years are just filled with persecution and distress and destruction it's called the great tribulation. It's a terrible, terrible time. That's where we find ourselves this morning in Revelation chapter 12, looking at how the devil is pursuing Israel. There really has never been a nation more oppressed than Israel. You don't even have to read between the lines sometimes in politicians' statements and rulers' statements. They will literally say, my objective is to destroy Israel. This has happened in my lifetime. Where the, the news headlines of neighboring countries around Israel are saying, oh, I'm trying to destroy them. I would wish that they would not exist anymore. Why is that? It's not because they have the most incredible natural resources that make it a target where other nations want that. There's literally one river that goes right down the middle of Israel. If you've been to Israel, you've been in the Jordan River probably, and you know it's not the cleanest, prettiest river in the world. If you've been to Israel, you probably have seen there's that airstrip that's in the valley of Megiddo. And that airstrip in the valley of Megiddo, which is where Armageddon, the battle, is going to take place. Uh, the, the jets fly in. Israeli pilots fly in. There's an airstrip, a, a place where they land. And then at the end of that airstrip, it literally goes down. There's a ramp that takes it underground because they know that if the planes were hanging out above ground, missiles would just come from neighboring countries and they'd blow up their entire air force. Ever since Genesis 3, the devil has hated Israel. From Hamas to Haman in Esther to Hitler in World War II. The devil has always wanted to destroy Israel. And Revelation 12 is really showing us the evil that is behind the evil of all those political rulers. It's the satanic evil that's behind all the political oppression and evil that's going on. But Revelation 12 also teaches us of the protection that God gives to his own people. So this morning we will finish out Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 13 and ending in verse 17. And we will see those two realities, Satan's attacks against Israel and God's supernatural protection of his own people. Let's read this together and then we'll ask God's blessing on our time. Revelation chapter 12, verse 13. And when the dragon, who is the devil, who is Satan, saw that he was thrown down to earth, 
he persecuted the woman, who is Israel, who gave birth to the male child, who is the Messiah. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, as we end this amazing chapter, we've really seen all of human history play out from the very beginning when the serpent deceived Eve to now as the serpent is going after the last possible people to persecute. God, we stand in between those two occurrences. We stand in between Eve being tempted and Israel being persecuted by the devil in those last days. And it would be very easy for us as we read Revelation and we're seeing prophecy of what is yet to come to kind of half-heartedly give attention to it because it's not happening now. We might not even be here when it is happening. It would be very easy to feel like this does not apply And Father, I pray that your spirit would guard us from that tendency. That we would fight with everything that we have to give ourselves to what this means for us today. And it means so much for believers today. So Father, we pray as we do every Lord's Day with absolute utter dependence upon you. We will not Glean anything that we should glean from this text apart from your spirit. So we pray, Holy Spirit, open our eyes. Please open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. We need you. We give ourselves wholly to you. We are completely dependent upon you. And we ask that you would raise our affections for Jesus as we stare at what this passage means and what that meaning means for our lives today. We pray this all in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. These verses really are easy to understand what's happening. There's an attack, there's supernatural protection, there's an attack, there's supernatural protection. So that's really our outline for this morning. If you take notes, number one, we're just going to see Satan attacking Israel. So verse 13, number one, Satan attacks Israel. Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth. We talked about that last week. The dragon was thrown down. He no longer has access to heaven and to accuse the brethren before God in those end times. And so the dragon has been thrown down. And he knows, remember in verse 12, that his time is short. He knows he does not have much more time. Either he has seven years, if you think that he's fallen at the beginning of the tribulation, or he has three and a half years if he's fallen right in the middle of the tribulation. Either way, it's not a lot of time. And so he's going to make the most of his time. In this way, I think the devil seems to be more advantageous than we are sometimes because he knows his time is short, and so he wants to make the most of his time. 
He knows there's an end point to his battle with Israel and his battle with God. And so he wants to make the most of it. He knows his time is running out. Brothers and sisters, we know our time is running out. Right? We are on a timer, right? It's slowly ticking down. We don't know how much time we have left, but Ephesians 5 tells us that we need to make the most of the time that we are given because the days are evil. So Satan is going all in against God. We should go all in for God because we know our time is short. Satan hates the Messiah who's been thrown down to the earth. He hates the Messiah. He wanted to kill the Messiah, but the Messiah ascended into heaven. So Satan no longer has access to heaven. So he's going to go after what he does have access to, and that's Israel that produced the Messiah. Satan also hates the church, but the church has been removed at this point. The church has been taken out of that time of great tribulation. The church has been removed, and therefore the devil has no access to the church. That's why he's putting all of his energy into destroying Israel. He's not going after the church and Israel. He's only going after Israel because he only has Israel to go after. He's all in. Why is he going after Israel now? We've, we've talked about he tried to go after Israel in Genesis 3 all the way to the cross because he wanted to make sure that the Messiah wouldn't be born. Once the Messiah is born, he tries to destroy the Messiah through Herod. He tries to tempt the Messiah in the wilderness. He tries to kill the Messiah on the cross to make sure he's good and dead. He tries everything that he can do to get Messiah to fail. And instead, Satan fails. So what's he going to do now? He can't stop salvation from being offered, but maybe he can stop the kingdom from coming. The promised kingdom in the Old Testament that was going to be given to Israel, if he wipes out Israel, then there's no chance of the kingdom coming. And if the kingdom doesn't come, then God is a liar. But maybe that's why he's fighting against Israel. He just hates everyone that stands for the Messiah. And he's doing this. He's going to persecute them, as verse 13 says. He's persecuting the woman, that's Israel, who gave birth to the male child, the Messiah. And he's doing that through the work of the Antichrist. That's what we're going to see, chapter 13 on. He's going to persecute Israel through the work of the Antichrist. Just a reminder, we'll see this in depth over the next coming weeks, but Zechariah 12, Daniel 11 says that the Antichrist is going to make a covenant of peace with Israel at the beginning of those seven years. The Antichrist is going to make a covenant of peace. That's why he's going to be the Antichrist. I've, I've spoken with many Jewish friends who I've asked, hey, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I know that you don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I see all these prophecies that he's fulfilled. He was born in Bethlehem. He did all these things that Messiah was promised to do. Can I just ask you, why do you not believe that Jesus is the Messiah? And in a, an amazing conversation, super civil, we're just having a great dialogue together. Their one answer across the board is there peace in Israel? And I'll say no. And I'll say, well, then Jesus wasn't the Messiah. Because Messiah is promised to bring peace in Israel, to give them their land, to give them peace. You and I believe that that is a promise of the Messiah, and that is going to happen when he returns. But they believe that it all should have happened at one time. And so since there's no peace in Israel, Jesus tried. He was a great teacher. He was a good prophet. He tried, but he wasn't the Messiah according to our Jewish friends. Sometimes they will even go so far as to say, it doesn't really matter if he's born in Bethlehem or not. It doesn't really matter if he fulfills those prophecies, line of Judah, line of David. 
That doesn't matter to us. All that matters to us is that we have peace. Well, guess what? We're set up for the Antichrist, right? Because somebody's going to show up, and they're going to be able to bring peace in the Middle East. Somehow they're going to bring peace to Israel. And whoever does that, the world's going to look on and say, hey, could you rule all of us? Because no one's ever been able to do that. So just rule us all. There's our Antichrist. He's going to bring peace. We saw that in Revelation chapter 6, right? Revelation chapter 6, the first seal was broken, the Antichrist coming, ruling, bringing peace, global peace. After making peace with Israel, the Old Testament is abundantly clear as to what Antichrist is going to do. Let me just tell you an overview. After making peace with Israel, the Antichrist is going to take a southern group of nations and go to war with a northern group of nations. He's going to go into Europe. Joel 3 describes this. He's going to take armies from Egypt with him when he goes into the north. Daniel 11 says that he's going to take armies from Persia with him, which is modern-day Iran. Revelation 17 says that he's going to go into Rome, which is where Europe is. Ezekiel 38 says that he's going to go into Spain and fight in Spain. He's just going to go out into war, and he's going to bring peace in certain places, and then he's going to conquer certain nation groups. And then as he's going to come back around, the war is going to turn against him. This is the end of Daniel 11. The war is going to turn against him. He's going to go back into Jerusalem. Halfway through the seven-year period, he's going to land in Jerusalem. After trying to bring peace to all these places, he brings peace at the beginning of the seven years. Then he goes off to war to try and uh, subjugate all these other nations under his feet. Some will fight against him. There will be a war. He does whatever this abomination of desolation is that we'll look at in the coming weeks halfway through that seven-year period, three and a half years in, and he's going to break his treaty with Israel. He's going to break his covenant with Israel, and then he's going to go after them with everything that he has. So for three and a half years, he's touring around the world, trying to bring all of the world under his power and under his authority, and then three and a half years, he lands in Jerusalem, he attacks Israel, he breaks his covenant, and that's really what we're seeing here all summed up in verse 13. The dragon, I believe being thrown down at that midway point is going to use the Antichrist to go after Israel for those last three and a half years. But point number two, God preserves them supernaturally. Satan attacks Israel, but God preserves them supernaturally. Verse 14, but Satan throws everything that he has after Israel and God protects them. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place. It's a place that's designated for her, prepared for her. And she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So let's go back. Let's go back to Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. I think this will be very helpful just to see what this means by time, times, and half a time. Because again, this is all Old Testament language. So Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 25. Well, we can start in verse uh, 24, because this is imagery that we're going to see. We've already seen it, and we're going to see it again in chapter 13 of the Antichrist. The ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and other, another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones, and will subdue three kings. So this he is the Antichrist, verse 25. He is going to speak out against the Most High. He's going to wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, 
and half a time. So let's just add that up. Time is one, times is two, and half a time is half of one. So that's three and a half, right? Time one, times two, so that's three, and then half a time is a half. That's three and a half years. So three and a half years, he is given control of everything. And he's going to sit in judgment over the world. If you turn to Daniel chapter 12, just a couple chapters over, Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. This is where an angel is going to show up. Verse 7, Daniel chapter 12, verse 7, the man dressed in linen, this angel is above the waters and of the river. He raised his right hand and his left toward heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. So this is yet to come. This is the future prophecy of Daniel for time, times, and half a time, for three and a half years. So anybody reading the book of Revelation that knows the Old Testament clearly sees, oh, this is what Daniel's referring to. And Daniel's talking about the Antichrist. Daniel's talking about the end time. We totally know what's going on. The same thing is true for these, these wings that are given these two wings that are given to Israel. Some people want those to be America. I've heard America is an interpretation that America swoops in and, and saves Israel. I don't think that it's America. I think it's some supernatural way that God protects. And it's not wings of like a plane or wings of something like that. It's imagery that's taken from the Old Testament. So since we're already in the Old Testament, go back to uh, Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. A lot of people will make some really, really silly interpretive comments on this big eagle and the, the two wings. They say the eagle, well, eagle must be, you know, bald eagle. Uh, it's not a bald eagle. The Israelites don't have a bald eagle there. They, don't, they wouldn't know that. They wouldn't understand what a bald eagle is representing. But Exodus, uh, let's go to chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, you'll see this imagery. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. This is God talking. And how I bore you on eagles' wings. And I brought you to myself. So I swooped in, I protected you, and I got you out of there. That's the imagery. Obviously, God doesn't have wings. He's not flying. This is imagery that's used to talk about the protection that he is giving and offering to his people. Turn over to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 9. The Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. And he found him in a desert land, in the howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nests, that hovers over its young. He spreads his wings, and he caught them, and he carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him. So this is God's guidance of his people on eagles' wings. If you turn over to the book of Psalms, one last passage, Psalm chapter 91. In Psalm 91, the psalmist uses this same language. This is such Old Testament language that he picks up on it as well in verse 4. Psalm chapter 91, verse 4. God, Yahweh, will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His, his faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. 
So Revelation 12, when it talks about Israel being protected supernaturally by the wings of the great eagle, it's Old Testament language. Somehow God's going to deliver them supernaturally. He did it in Egypt through taking them through the Red Sea, splitting the Red Sea, and he's going to do it again. Whether it's the Red Sea, I don't know, it doesn't have to be, probably not. But this isn't a reference to an actual physical bird. This is imagery that's used in the Old Testament that any uh, Hebrew mind would understand to be God supernaturally working to protect his people. Back in Revelation chapter 12, the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness. The wilderness in Israel is everything along the Dead Sea and across the Jordan River. It's where David hid in a place called En Gedi, where he was running from Saul and he was nourished there. And that's what it says God's going to do for Israel. He's going to nourish her for time and times and half a time. This is really important. Nourish is a word that means provide safety, security, but also to give sustenance. To provide safety, security, to give warmth, to give peace, but to give sustenance. And that's really, really important. Number one, it's an Old Testament allusion again to Elijah. Remember, Elijah received food from God uh, through um, just a sovereign, supernatural means of the birds coming to give him food, just like Israel in the wilderness with quail and manna. We just read that in our family devotions as a family a couple nights ago. Given food supernaturally, God's going to take care of his people. But here it's vital that God takes care of his people because what's happening in the back half of this period of seven years is you remember the, the title of the mark of the beast, right? You cannot buy or sell. You cannot be involved in the economy if you don't take the mark of the beast. So if you are a follower of God, God himself is going to have to care for you because you can't buy or sell. You can't get what you need to be sustained. So God himself will give it to you. God will nourish them for time, times, and half a time, for three and a half years. By the way, that word nourish is the same word that's used in Ephesians chapter 5 for what husbands are called to do with their wives. Husbands, love your wives just like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might cleanse her and he might nourish her. We're called not to cleanse our wives. We can't do that. But we are called to nourish them to provide peace, safety, warmth, security. Can I just tell you, husbands, you should be the safest place in the world for your wife. You should be the safest place that she has to go to. Not her best friends, not girl talk. You need to be the safest place for her so that she can come to you, talk to you about anything, open up to you about everything, and feel safe, feel secure, feel at peace, and not feel judged. So husbands, can I just ask you to go home today and ask your wives, do you feel safe with me? Emotionally safe. Do you feel secure in our relationship? That you could tell me anything and I'm not going to explode, I'm not going to judge you, I'm here for you and I love you. That's the way that our father is to us. Our husband is as we are the bridegroom, or he is the bridegroom, we are the bride. Our husband loves us that way. And so we should love our wives that way as well. So Satan attacks Israel. God defends them. Point number three, Satan attacks Israel again. This is verse 15. Satan attacks Israel again. The serpent pours water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. Some people take this 
literally, I think since we're in a bunch of imagery here, we're talking about the dragon, the woman, the child, we're talking about wings of an eagle, we're talking about time, times, and half a time. I, I don't think that we need to take this literally like Satan is throwing a flood. It could be that because floods happen often in Israel. Uh, I would rather see it as what Daniel 11 verse 40 talks about where there is an army that overflows from the Antichrist. It's the same word in the Septuagint, an overflowing, a flooding. And so I believe that what is being referred to here in verse 15 is the Antichrist taking all of his armies and going after Israel. Satan's behind it all. Satan's behind it all. It's really interesting. We don't have time to go there, but Daniel 11, verse 41, says that there are three regions. As the Antichrist is taking all of these nations to go after Israel, there are three nations that don't go with him. It's Edom, it's Moab, and it's Ammon. Those are Hebrew words. Those are Hebrew names for Hebrew places. For us today, that's Jordan, Syria, and Iraq that says we're not following the Antichrist. Jordan, Syria, and Iraq. And it says that in Daniel eleven forty through 42 that God will use those three places to preserve his people as the Antichrist is going after them. So listen to how crazy this is. Jordan, Syria, and Iraq will one day be refuge places for Israel. Right now, they're against them. But one day, they're going to say no to the Antichrist and be used by God to bring Israel to a place of protection. How awesome of our God to do that, to flip the war on its head and protect his people. This is Matthew chapter 24. Again, we don't have time to go there. This is where Jesus says the Antichrist will commit the abomination of desolation, and then all who see it need to flee. And they're going to flee to the mountains. They're going to flee to the, the valleys. They're going to flee to the wilderness. This is where he says it's not going to be good if it's in winter. It's not going to be good if you're pregnant or nursing. You're going to have to run for your life. And at the end of that three-and-a-half-year period, Zechariah 12 says that Israel as a nation will come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. They're going to realize, oh, the guy that we thought was Messiah, he was not the Messiah, the Antichrist. He claimed to bring peace to Israel for three and a half years. He broke his covenant. He's clearly not the Messiah. And then believers that are there who are going to share Jesus Christ as Messiah with these Jewish friends are going to bring them to a place where they understand Jesus is the Messiah. They will look on him whom they have pierced and they'll receive him as Messiah. Some people think that they are fleeing to Petra. That's one interpretation in the wilderness, and they're, they're stuck in that rock so that they're unable to uh, be swept away by these armies. Some people think that so much that uh, they've placed Bibles. If you go into Petra, if you go back into where Petra is, it's in this rock. It's the, the end of uh, Indiana Jones and uh, the Last Crusade. It's that beautiful exterior in the rock and the valley and that canyon. And people have placed Bibles there that as the Jews would flee there in the end times, they could get the Bibles, they could read, they could be saved. I don't think that it's Petra. I'm sure that some people will go there. Um, but God's going to save his people. And then when he comes back, he's going to wage war against the Antichrist in the Battle of Armageddon. So Satan attacks. God supernaturally preserves. Satan attacks again. Verse 16, number four, God preserves them again. So this flood of an army is going after Israel, but, verse 16, again, but he's not able to do it. The earth helped the woman, opened its mouth, 
drank up the river. So whether it's maybe an earthquake that destroys the majority of the army, maybe it's just that they are able to hide themselves in places where the army's not able to get to, we don't know. But we do know that the army that's sent to destroy Israel can't accomplish their mission. They can't. The dragon is no match for Israel's God-given powers. So, point number five, verse 17, Satan attacks obedience instead. So he attacks Israel, God preserves them. He attacks Israel, God preserves them. So verse 17, he's going to attack anyone who is obedient to Yahweh. The dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children. So this is the woman gave birth to the Messiah, the rest of her children. That's any other Jewish believer who's keeping the commandments of God and holding fast to the testimony of Jesus. We know that this includes the 144,000 Jews who have been sealed and unable to be destroyed. We know that this includes other people too. Satan knows I can't destroy all of Israel, so I'm just going to go after anyone who bows the knee to Jesus as Messiah and as Lord. I'm just going after anyone who loves Jesus. He's going to do that through the Antichrist. He's going to do that through the Mark of the Beast. He's going to do it any way that he can to get you to say, I don't want to follow Jesus anymore. He just wants to stop these believers in the end times from being obedient. And he's going to use any means possible to do that. So, we finish out chapter 12. We see Satan attacks Israel, God preserves him. Satan attacks, God preserves him. So Satan's just going after everyone who loves Jesus. And we really can sum up chapter 12 with two main points. Number one, you have an enemy, a very real enemy, and he hates you. This is discussing the people in the end times. This is discussing believers in the end times. But Satan hates you too, right now. He doesn't want you to follow Jesus. He doesn't want you to obey Jesus. D.L. Moody said it this way, I believe the devil is real for two reasons. Number one, because the Bible says so. And number two, I've done business with him. You know what spiritual warfare is. You know what being attacked by demonic forces is. We don't wage war against the flesh. We wage war against the supernatural realm. And the devil hates those who obey Christ. So if you love Jesus and are desiring to follow him, you have a very real enemy. Here's what he wants to do. He wants to confuse, he wants us to be confused with the beauty of righteousness and the beast of sin. He wants to confuse those two things, to take the beauty of righteousness and make it look ugly and take the destructive beast of what sin is and make it look beautiful. That's what Satan wants. We have a very real enemy. But point number two, as we've seen already this morning, twice, our God is greater than our enemy. Our God is greater than our enemy. We have a very real enemy, and he hates us, but we have an even greater defense, and he loves us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The devil is in the world, but you have someone who is in you, the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit residing in you who is greater than he who is in the world. Mark this down. Note this and know it well as you walk through this life. Satan is not God's equal. It's not like they're fighting and there's a rival going on and Satan might overpower God. No, Satan 
is not God's equal. And in fact, Satan's equal, at least in chapter 12, seems to be Michael, right? Michael, the, the archangel that destroyed Satan, that kicked him out of heaven. So Satan's probably a little bit less powerful, a little bit less strong, a little bit less able than Michael, the archangel. That's a created being. Satan is not God's equal. Therefore, if we have God residing in us, then we don't have any reason to be afraid. We have an enemy that hates us, but we have a defense that loves us. You remember Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If God is for us, then who can be against us? So when we come to the end of chapter 12 and we see all these events in the future, we see Satan attacking God's people and we see God sovereignly, supernaturally protecting them. I want to ask the question, what does that look like today? Because Satan is attacking you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he's attacking you. You are God's people, and he's attacking you. Is God protecting, protecting you? Has he promised to supernaturally guard and defend you? Well, I think Romans 8 is a great place to go. Let's ask that question. Let's let Paul answer it. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? So that's the question. We have an enemy that hates us, and he's against us, but can he be against us successfully? Can anyone be against you successfully? Well, Paul's logic is verse 32. The answer is going to be no. No one can successfully be against you. But the question is, why? Why can no one be successfully against you if God is for you? And the answer is Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he, not also with him, freely give us all things? So, he who did not spare, that's the father. Remember John 3.16, we know John 3.16, right? God so loved the world. It's the Father's love that's on display. Jesus did not go to the cross to get the Father to love us. Jesus went to the cross because the Father loves us. You remember David in the Old Testament when Absalom died. Remember when David found out that Absalom died? Remember what did David say? What did he do? He wept. He was inconsolable. He could not be comforted. And he said, Absalom, Absalom, my son, if only it was me. If only I could have died. He didn't want his son to die. There's such a massive tension for us in verse 32 that I think Paul wants us to feel the heartbeat of every father to do whatever is required to take care of his son. But the father did not spare his own son. His own son. Why does Paul use the words his own son? Two reasons. It's his only son. And secondly, it's the son that he infinitely loves. Utterly unique, utterly glorious, beautiful beyond compare. Three times in Jesus' earthly life, the father said about his son, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That just means everything that my son does pleases me. Everything he does, I love. And at the cross, 
Jesus, in full obedience, dies in our place. And the Father says, this is my beloved Son. I'm pleased in him. Look at him. When he himself, the Father, has to turn his face away. The Father saw on the cross the last person that he ever wanted to pour his wrath on. He didn't spare his own son, but he delivered him up for us all. Delivered him over. That's judicial language. That's used in Matthew 26, verse 2, to be delivered up when Pontius Pilate delivers Jesus up to be crucified. Listen to what the Father delivered Jesus over to. The Father delivered Jesus over to betrayal. Remember, Judas betrayed him. Best friend betrays him. The Father delivered Jesus up to relational abandonment. All of the other disciples fall away. Delivered Jesus up to torture, to brutality. Remember, Isaiah says that his his figure, his appearance was marred beyond recognition. That means that If somehow his head had been disconnected from his body and you found that head in a field somewhere, you wouldn't even be able to discern that it was a human head. Marred beyond recognition. He was delivered over to demonic attack. He was delivered over to physical death. We talked about this last week. For believers, physical death is the most amazing thing imaginable. Finally, we get heaven. We get Jesus. Death is gain. But for our Savior, his death meant being joined to sin, bearing sin in his flesh, sin which he had never experienced before, guilt and shame that he had never experienced before, all thrust upon him at the moment of his death. But he wasn't just delivered over to physical death, he was delivered over to spiritual death. You remember darkness covered the land for three hours. That's God's judgment being poured out. This wasn't an eclipse of the sun. This was at Passover. You remember Jesus died at Passover, and the the moon is full at Passover. This was God, the Father's judgment, coming in over Jesus and bringing hell to rest upon him. One commentator says it this way, Egypt lay in darkness for three days. Jerusalem lay in darkness for three hours. After the darkness, Egypt's firstborn sons were killed. In Jerusalem, the only begotten son of God was killed. In Egypt, a lamb's blood covered the doorposts of homes. In Jerusalem, the lamb of God's blood covered the sins of the world. We've been looking a lot at Satan in Revelation 12. What do you think Satan must have thought? when he saw darkness coming into the land, into Jerusalem. I wonder if Satan got scared. I wonder if Satan thought, well, this is it. I've poured out all of my wrath upon the Son of God, and finally the Father's had enough, and he's going he's to come after me. How strange would it have been for the devil to see the Father not pour out wrath on the devil? but pour out wrath on the Father's only Son. The Father would raise his hand against his own Son and not spare him. 2,000 years earlier, Abraham had done the exact same to raise his hand over his only Son. 
son of the covenant. No other son was going to bear the lineage that God had promised to bring blessing to. But the father had stopped Abraham in that moment and said, no, I'll provide another lamb. I'll provide someone else, something else. 2,000 years after Abraham, the father's hand is raised over Jesus. And at that moment, instead of providing another substitute, because there is no other substitute for sin, the father brings his hand down on his only son. All that Satan had done throughout all of Jesus' earthly life was just a foretaste of what the father was going to do. It was nothing compared to what the father was going to do. The father brought hell itself onto Jesus. Every other human being who does not receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they will experience hell forever in the lake of fire for all of eternity. They will do so with bodies that have been made new. Remember, we talked about this last Q&A session. They will experience resurrected, glorified bodies that cannot die, made suitable to last forever in hell. Punishment eternal. You realize that Jesus experienced hell in a physical body, unglorified body. The fullness of the wrath of God thrown at Jesus, not with the glorified body, with a physical body, completely forsaken by the Father. When we get to heaven, all of us will enjoy the blessing of seeing our substitute who gave himself for me, for you. And all of us will enjoy the exact same experience of being dumbfounded that we're there by grace. But all of us will look at him And we'll know there is only one person in heaven, only one person who has ever known what it is to be forsaken by God. We get to exist in heaven for all of eternity without any understanding of what it means to be forsaken because we've never been forsaken by the Father. There's only one person in heaven who's been forsaken, who's experienced that, and that is Jesus Christ. In your darkest hour, in your blackest night, in times when sorrow and tribulation overwhelm your soul and you feel as though the Lord doesn't hear you and you're standing by Jesus pleading with him. Go back to the cross. Look at what he did for you. He was forsaken so that you would never be. All of the Father's protection over Jesus was removed so that you and I experience God's protection. He did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. It's an offer for everyone. He receives the bruising that we deserve, and we receive the glorification that he deserves. One commentator says it this way, Jesus willingly suffered so sinners could escape it. Jesus' abandonment means the sinner's adoption. He took our place on the cross so that we can join him in the kingdom. Because he was abandoned socially, we become children in the household of God. Because he was deserted emotionally, we become whole again. Because he suffered spiritual separation, we are now spiritually united to him through faith. Never separated from his love ever. Because he was forsaken, we are forgiven. So, Paul's question. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer to that is verse 32. 
God the Father did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. So how will he not also with him freely give us all things? This is a logical argument, an a fortiori argument from the greater to the lesser. God's done the hardest thing imaginable. So anything left for him to do is a piece of cake. What would you say is the biggest obstacle standing between you and reconciliation with God? When you are a sinner far away from God, an enemy of God, what is the biggest obstacle between you and being fully reconciled to God the Father? There's a lot of answers to that question. Your sin, yes. The devil's schemes, yes. The father's wrath, yes. Punishment for sin, yes. All of those things are real, they're true, and they're good. But this verse would say there's an even bigger obstacle standing between you and salvation. The biggest obstacle standing in the way between you and getting saved was the father's love for his son. That's the biggest obstacle. If the father can overcome that, then he can do anything. The biggest obstacle is will the father willingly give up his own son? And this verse says he did. He gave up his son. He didn't spare his son. He gave him for you. He said, I would rather you be able to be saved and have my son die than preserve my son and let you all be condemned in hell forever. He did that because of his love for you. So there's nothing harder than that. There's nothing more difficult than that. John Flavel says it this way. He spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him freely give us all things? How is it imaginable that God should withhold after this spiritual or temporal things from his people? How shall he not call them effectually, justify them freely, sanctify them thoroughly, glorify them eternally? How shall he not clothe them, feed them, protect them, deliver them? Surely he would not spare his own son one stroke, one tear, one groan, one sigh, one circumstance of misery. It can never be imagined that ever he should, after this, deny or withhold from his people for whose sake all of this was suffered, any mercies, any comforts, any privilege, spiritual or temporal, which is good for them. If he gave us Jesus, then he'll give us everything we need to finish the race. Therefore, since God handed over his son and freely gave us his only son. Verse 33, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Well, I would answer that, lots of people. <laughs> lots of people bring charges against me. Lots of people bring charges against you. Demons bring charges against you. The devil accuses you day and night like we were talking about a couple weeks ago. We know the reality that you are charged with guilt and sin constantly. The question is, who can do it successfully? The answer, God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? God's the one who justifies. There is no higher court than God's court. God's the one who says, you're not guilty. You're not guilty. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn and in it, he said this, saved from the legal curse I am, my Savior hangs on yonder tree. 
See there, the meek, expiring lamb, tis finished, he expires for me. Accepted in the well-beloved and clothed in righteousness divine, I see the bar to heaven removed, and all thy merits, Lord, are mine. Bold shall I stand in thy great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. God is the one who justifies. Bring any accusation before a believer, and God says, not guilty, covered in the blood of my son. I gave my son so that they would be saved, not guilty. Well, who's the one who condemns? We have condemnation all around us. We have condemnation from friends, family. We have condemnation from the devil, from our enemy. Well, but we have Christ who died. Yes, rather, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. We saw that last week. He is our intercessor and our advocate. So people can condemn all they want, but we have Jesus who is the one who is receiving all of those condemnations upon himself. He is the one who has borne our condemnation and was raised from the dead so that we can know once and for all it is finished. It's finished. He died for us, so he's not going to condemn us when he already bore our condemnation. He was raised. The Father validated his atoning work. It's finished at the cross. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's fully accomplished all the work that he was sent to do, and now he's interceding for us and getting us safely home. So, verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? That's the, that's the question. Okay, so it's not going to be God. God did the work to save you, so he's not going to reject you. It's not going to be the devil. It's not going to be an enemy. It's not going to be a human. It's not going to be a person. Nobody can separate you from the love of, of Christ. No person can do that. Okay, so what about a circumstance? Will tribulation, that's outside pressure, squeezing trouble, harm, Will distress, that's inside pressure, being squeezed so hard from the outside that inside you're crumbling, there's fear, there's anxiety, there's doubt, there's dread. Well, persecution, that's abuse for the testimony of Jesus. Famine, that's no food. Maybe you're in jail because of persecution and you have no one to provide food for you. Nakedness, that's you're just in rags, you have no clothing. Peril, that's the danger of your very life being taken away. Sword, your life being taken away. You're about to be martyred. Any of these things... Can any of these things take you away from God? Can you lose your salvation or can you lose your relationship with God based off of any of these things? Because they're happening. Verse 36, just as it is written, this is Psalm 44, verse 22, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Can the devil take us away? Can he bring circumstances like the flood of the armies or bringing the mark of the beast? Can he do things to take us away from God? Verse 37, just like we saw it twice in Revelation 12. But in all these things, in all of them, whatever enemy we have, whatever bad circumstance we have, in all of them, we overwhelmingly conquer. Overwhelmingly conquer. That's hyper, overwhelmingly, hyper, the Greek word hyper. And then Nico, Nike, where we get Nike from, overcomer, the victor. We are hyper victors, meaning we don't just conquer the sin. We don't just conquer the temptation. We don't just conquer the trial. We actually use that trial for God's greater glory. Not only does it not destroy us, it actually makes us love Jesus all the more. What the devil uses to try and take you away from God actually brings you closer to God. The devil cannot win. He can't win in the end times. And he can't win in the present. 
Nobody and nothing can ever separate you. Paul's convinced. Verse 38, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you. Satan attacks you, God supernaturally defends. Satan attacks, God defends. Satan attacks, God defends. Satan tries to take you away, and the very thing that he uses to try and get you to fall away from God, God uses it in your life to bring you closer to God. There's just no way he can win and you can lose. But that's not for everyone. Who is that for? Go back up to verse 28. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So those would be my two questions for you this morning. Do you love God? Notice, Paul did not say to those who know God. Notice, Paul did not say to those who believe in God. Many of you know God, and if you didn't know God before your time with us this morning, you know him now. You know pieces of who he is now. Many of you might even believe that God is real. God is true. The Bible is true. Jesus is real. But it's not knowledge and belief. It's love, right? What does James tell us? The demons believe. They believe in God. But do they love him? No, they tremble with fear and rage and hatred against him. What's the difference between saving faith and demonic faith? The difference is, do you love Jesus? So I would ask you this morning, do you love Jesus more than anything in this world? Do you still love your sin? Do you live in your sin? Do you enjoy your sin? Do you find sin more satisfying than the Savior? Or are you fighting your sin? What you used to love in your sin, you now hate. And what you used to hate in the Savior, you now love. Do you love Jesus? Secondly, Paul says to those who are called, are you called by God? Has Jesus captured your attention? Is he something that you value? Remember that parable in Matthew 13, 44, the man who finds the field and the treasure's buried in the field and he goes back home and he sells everything that he has to get that treasure. You can't serve two masters. Either you will love your sin and you will hate God or you're going to hate your sin and you're going to love the Savior. Is Christ your greatest affection? If he is, then this morning I pray you're convinced that just like Israel in the end times, that Satan can never take them away, cannot overpower them, cannot destroy them because God's protecting them in the future. So too today, you being God's chosen people today, you being God's church today, God will protect you so Satan cannot take you away. But if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus, you do not love Jesus more than anything, the opposite is true. The devil has control of you. He can do whatever he wants with you. He can take you away at any point whatsoever. And if you die in your rebellion against God and in your love for your sin, you will die and spend eternity separated from God forever in hell. What Jesus experienced on the cross so that you wouldn't have to, you would reject and say, I don't want you, Jesus. I'd rather be in hell forever. Can I just plead with you this morning? Don't leave. Don't leave until you know that you have a heart that's been changed by Christ. 
and you can say, I'm going to follow him the rest of my days. In the future, there is a time of great tribulation coming during the last half of the seven-year period. Satan's going to do everything he can to attack Israel, and God will supernaturally defend them. Today, Satan is doing everything that he can to attack you, and God will supernaturally protect you. Therefore, we can sing, and we can sing with boldness. There is no power of hell. There is no scheme of man that can ever pluck me from his hand. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the amazing truths that we've seen today from Revelation about what you are going to do in the future. And we know that you've promised to do those things for us in the present. We pray now that as we sing, we would rest convinced, just like Paul, I am convinced that nothing can separate me from the love of God. Convince us, even as we sing, that if we are in you and we love you, that nothing and no one can take us away. We pray it in your name. Amen. Please stand with us as we worship together.